Welcome to the Murder Minute Podcast. Today we will be diving into the story of Dennis Rader, also known as BTK. But first, your true crime headlines. The long-delayed murder trial of John John Chuck is scheduled to begin this week more than four years after his arrest for the murder of his five-year-old daughter. John Chuck stands accused of dropping his daughter Phoebe from the Meisner Bridge, more than 60 feet above the cold, dark waters of the Tampa Bay. John Chuck's lawyers plan to mount an insanity defense. A North Carolina man was arrested during a traffic stop outside of Tucson, Arizona last week, armed with a knife and carrying a large amount of cash, just 34 miles from the Mexican border. The man, 57-year-old Rexford Lynn Keel Jr., is accused of murder in the stabbing death of his wife, Diana Alejandra Keel, whose decomposed body was found in a wooded area five days after she went missing. Investigators are also taking another look at the death of Keel's first wife, Elizabeth, who died in a slip-and-fall accident in the couple's home more than a decade ago. A Massachusetts court reinstated the murder conviction of late NFL star Aaron Hernandez, who hanged himself inside his jail cell in 2017. Hernandez was serving a life sentence for the murder of Odin Lloyd in 2013 and was awaiting an appeal at the time of his death. The high court ruled last week that the statute which allowed for a conviction to be vacated if the accused died before exhausting their appeals was antiquated and should not be applied in Hernandez's case or any others. Those are your true crime headlines. For more headlines, check out the Murder Minute app in the App Store and Google Play or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Coming up next, the story of BTK strangler Dennis Rader. But first, a quick break. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! On this episode of Murder Minute, another case where familial DNA played a part, though this one also includes a healthy dose of plain old stupidity. Dennis Rader was a husband, a father, a Cub Scout leader, and the president of his church congregation. He was also a sadistic killer known as BTK, who confessed to 10 murders in and around Wichita, Kansas. Dennis Rader was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas in 1945. He moved to Wichita when he was a child. The oldest of four boys, Dennis was a seemingly normal kid. He was involved in his church youth group the Boy Scouts, and was an average student. One of his former classmates described him as completely devoid of a sense of humor, but polite and quiet. As a child, Dennis fantasized about bondage and torture. He secretly killed cats and dogs by hanging 
during his youth. He joined the Air Force at the age of 21 and served for four years. He returned to Wichita after he was discharged and married at 26. Raider and his wife Paula had two children, a son and a daughter. They raised them in Park City, Kansas, a quiet suburb of Wichita. Sometime in late 1973, Dennis was depressed after being laid off from his job and was out trolling for victims, as he called it. He spotted Julie Ortero, 33, taking her children to school. He was attracted to the beautiful mother and also to her daughter, Josephine, who was just 11. They would be his first victims, his projects, as he called them. Two months later, in January of 1974, he cut the phone lines at the Ortero house and pushed his way in the back door one morning while young Joey Ortero was letting the dog out. Raider had expected to find just Julie and the children in the house, but was surprised instead to find that Mr. Ortero was also home. He held the four Orteros at gunpoint and ordered them to lie down on the living room floor. He moved them to the bedroom, tying up Julie and Josephine on the bed, and Joseph and Joey on the floor. He decided that since he had not worn a mask and all four Orteros had seen his face, he would need to put them down. He tied a plastic bag around Joseph's head to suffocate him, then strangled Julie. Once he killed the parents, he suffocated nine-year-old Joey, tying a bag over his head, and then pulling up a chair so that he could sit and watch the child squirm and struggle. After Joey was dead, he took Josephine to the basement. He hung her from a rope that he had slung over a pipe, suspended her low enough that her feet almost touched the ground, and then masturbated as he watched her slowly die. Dennis Rader then cleaned up and left the house. The Orteros were found by their teenage son when he returned home from school that day. Soon after, Rader was out trolling again when he spotted Catherine Bright. She was a pretty 21-year-old college student and he chose her to be his next victim. Projects Lights Out, he called it. On April 4th, 1974, Project Lights Out was a go. He burst through the screen door of Catherine Bright's home, wearing a stocking cap and carrying a 22 pistol. Though he had stalked Catherine, he was unaware that she had a brother and was surprised to find he was home with Catherine. He tied up both of them, securing Kevin Bright's feet to the bedpost as he began to strangle Catherine. In his confession, he would tell of how Catherine fought like a hellcat. Kevin managed to escape his bindings, so Raider shot him in the head, then continued to strangle Catherine. She continued to fight, and eventually he stabbed her. When he went back to check on Kevin, he was shocked to find that not only had he survived the two gunshot wounds to the head, but Kevin was actually running from the house in search of help. The BTK killer quickly cleaned up and fled the home, running five or six blocks back to where he had left his car. Dennis Rader had started working for the ADT security company in the fall of 1974. He would keep this job for more than a decade, working to install security systems in the very same neighborhoods he was terrorizing. In October of 1974, he sent a letter to the Wichita Eagle Beacon claiming responsibility for the Ortero family's murders. The unsigned letter was full of spelling and grammatical errors, but included detail about the crime that could only have been known to the killer. In the postscript, he suggested that he should be known as BTK, an allusion 
to the method of binding, torturing, and killing his victims. He promised that there would be more victims. The police did not release this information to the public, and BTK would not kill again for almost three years. When he did, his victim was Shirley Vianne, a 26-year-old mother of three who was home with her children when BTK struck. He told a terrified Shirley that he had a problem with sexual fantasies and that he needed to tie her up and that if she and her children cooperated, they wouldn't be killed. Shirley complied and helped the killer lock her children in the bathroom. He gave them toys and blankets to comfort them, then tied Shirley's feet to the bedpost, just as he had done to Kevin Bright years earlier. Shirley vomited while BTK was tying her down. He got her a glass of water and tried to comfort her. He then tied her with a rope and secured a plastic bag over her head. He masturbated as he watched her die. Her horrified children watched through an opening in the bathroom door. The killer planned to murder the Vian children, just as he had the Orteros. A ringing phone disrupted his plan. Fearing that the police were on their way, he fled the home, leaving the Vian children locked in the bathroom. By the end of 1977, the BTK killer had moved on to yet another project. He called this one Project Fox Hunt. Victim Nancy Fox was 25. She worked during the day as a secretary for a construction company and nights at a jewelry store. He chose December 8, 1977 as the day he would attack. He parked a few blocks away from Nancy's house. He approached and knocked on her door. When no one answered, he went around the back and cut the phone lines. He broke in through a kitchen door and waited for her to return home. In his confession, Dennis Rader called this attack a perfect hit. Like some of his other victims, he told Nancy that he was just going to tie her up and took steps to put her at ease. They talked and smoked a cigarette while he went through her purse. She said she wanted to get it over with and asked if she could go to the bathroom first. He allowed this and told her to take off her clothes while she was in there. When she came out of the bathroom, he put her in handcuffs, laid her on the bed, tied her feet, and then strangled her with a belt. When she was nearly dead, he released his grip on the belt and whispered in her ear that he was the BTK killer. As he tells in his confession, this made her squirm even more. He tightened the belt again and did not let up until Nancy Fox was dead. He masturbated as she died. He brazenly reported her murder to the police himself, dialing 911 from a payphone. In January of 1979, he sent a poem to the Eagle Beacon, referencing the murder of Shirley Vianne. Less than two weeks later, he sent a letter to KAK-TV in Wichita claiming responsibility for the murders of Nancy Fox and Shirley Vianne, as well as another unnamed victim. The letter began, How many do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national recognition? After this letter was received, Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemunyan called a press conference and announced to the public that there was a serial killer on the loose, and they believed that he would kill again. BTK would strike again in April of 1979. Victim 8 was Anna Williams, a recent widow who lived alone. That night, he cut her phone line and broke into her house, where he waited for her to return home, and waited, and waited, and waited. 
Anna Williams stayed out late with her friends that evening, and it saved her life. The killer got tired of waiting, so he stole a few things and left. When Anna returned home, she found her house broken into and her phone dead. A few months later, Anna received a package containing items stolen from her house, a drawing of what the killer intended to do to her, and a poem entitled, Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? He sent a similar package to the media. After this failed attack, the BTK killer went dormant for more than six years. Maureen Hedge lived five houses away from Dennis Rader. She was a petite woman, recently widowed, whom Dennis would wave to when he saw her outside gardening. In April of 1985, he decided she would be an ideal project for him. He dubbed her Project Cookie. He used a Cub Scout camping trip as his opportunity to pounce. While everyone slept, he crept from his tent and sneaked away. He drove to Maureen Hedge's house, cut the phone lines, and broke in. Maureen was not home. When she did return, Maureen Hedge was in the company of a male friend who stayed until around 1 a.m. The killer hid in her bedroom closet, waiting until her guest had gone home and she was alone in her bed to finally pounce. He strangled her and then wrapped her body in a blanket and put it in the trunk of her car. He drove to the parking lot of the church where he had been a member for decades. He snuck her body into the church basement and took Polaroid pictures of Maureen Hedge's dead body, arranged in different bondage poses. When he had finished, he dumped her body in a ditch and snuck back to the Cub Scout camp, undetected. BTK's ninth victim was Vicki Wagerly. She enjoyed the piano. Raider heard her playing while stalking her home and dubbed this Project Piano. On the afternoon of September 16, 1986, he dressed in a telephone repairman's uniform and knocked on Vicky's door. He told her that he needed to check on her phone lines, so she opened the door and let him in. Once he was inside, he pulled a gun on Vicky. He tied her up and strangled her with a pair of pantyhose. Vicky struggled mightily and made a great deal of noise. When she finally stopped moving, the killer rearranged her clothing and took three Polaroid pictures of her dead body. Fearing that all the noise could have attracted attention, he left quickly, escaping in the victim's car. Vicky Wagerly's husband was on his way home for lunch when he saw the killer drive right past him, behind the wheel of his wife's car. The car would be found abandoned later that day, two blocks away from the Wagerly home. Vicki Wagerly's murder was not immediately attributed to the BTK killer. Her husband, Bill, was considered to be a suspect for 18 years until the BTK killer confessed to the crime in a 2004 letter to the Wichita Eagle. A 62-year-old retiree would be Raider's last known victim. Thinking that it would be easier to overpower an older woman, BTK set his sights on Dolores D. Davis. She lived near a dog kennel, so was dubbed Project Dogside. Again, he used a scout camp as a cover for his crime. On a cold January night in 1991, he set up his campsite, then sneaked away. First, he moved his car near his church. Because he was a scout leader, he had keys to the building. He changed into dark clothes and assembled his hit kit of ropes, bindings, and weapons. He walked over two miles unnoticed to Davis's house, where he broke in and strangled her. 
He wrapped her dead body in a blanket and put it in the trunk of her car. He dumped her body under a bridge and returned to camp. The next day, he came back to the spot under the bridge where he had left Dee's body. He put a mask on her to pretty her up and then posed her corpse for bondage photos. He later told investigators that the mask was his and that he would sometimes photograph himself in bondage poses wearing that same mask. Dolores Davis's body wouldn't be found for 13 days. For over a decade, the BTK case remained cold. Then, in March of 2004, the Wichita Eagle received a letter. The return addressee was Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK. The author of the letter claimed to have murdered Vicki Wegerly in 1986 and included crime scene photos and a copy of Wegerly's driver's license, which had been stolen at the time of her murder. Throughout 2004, additional letters and packages were received by local media outlets and discovered in public places. In June, a package containing a graphic description of the Orteo family murders was found taped to a stop sign in Wichita. In December, a package was found in a local park. This one contained the driver's license of BTK victim Nancy Fox, which was reported missing at the time of her murder. In January of 2005, while attempting to leave a package in a Home Depot parking lot, BTK is seen on grainy surveillance footage driving a black Jeep Cherokee. In correspondence with police, the BTK killer asked if police would be able to trace his letters if he sent them on a floppy disk. The police responded in a newspaper ad assuring him that they would not be able to trace them. On February 16, 2005, the town's local Fox affiliate received a package from BTK, which included a floppy disk. In the metadata on the disk was a deleted word document containing Christ Lutheran Church. The document was last modified by Dennis. A quick internet search turned up Dennis Rader at Christ Lutheran Church. Drove a black Jeep Cherokee. Police believed that Rader was their guy, but they needed more evidence. They got a warrant to test DNA from a pap smear Rader's daughter had taken while she was a student at Kansas State University. The DNA was determined to be a close match to the killer. Dennis Rader was arrested on February 25, 2005, and charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. He pleaded guilty in June of 2005, describing his crimes in great detail and without apology during his hearing. His family did not attend any of his court appearances, still reeling from the shock of learning that their beloved husband and father was a deranged killer. In his sentencing in August of 2005, he gave a bizarre, rambling, nearly 30-minute-long statement. Kansas did not have the death penalty at the time of the killings. Instead, Rader was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences. He serves this time at El Dorado Correctional Facility, where he is held in solitary confinement for his own safety. Carrie Rawson, the adult daughter of Dennis Rader, has written a book about her experience called A Serial Killer's Daughter, for more on this story, download the Murder Minute app from the App Store. Don't forget to download the Murder Minute app, available on the App Store and Google Play. Subscribe today on Himalaya, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute 
for even more true crime headlines. Murder Minute, your daily dose of true crime.